This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to this week's Money and Markets podcast. And with me in the hot seat this week, AJ Bell's Head of Investment Analysis, Laith Kalaf. Hi, Laith. Yeah, hi, Danny. And lots going on this week. Uh, Again, those all important interest rate decisions that we're waiting for. Uh, in the US and also over here in the UK. We've also seen renewed calls for a a windfall tax on energy companies after BP and Shell announced bumper profits in the last week. And while we're talking energy, we're also going to discuss those government energy payments, which should have found their way into your hands. We'll be chatting about what you should do if you've not received yours. And the Twitter deal, it's been just going on for ages. It's finally, (laughs) finally done. Elon Musk uh, is the chief twit. Uh, those are his words, not mine. Uh, we'll be looking at what that all means for the social media platform too. And also with more lockdowns affecting companies like Apple, Disney and Neo in China, I've caught up with Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity, about whether there's anything to speculation that the zero COVID policy might be relaxed and what investors should be thinking about when it comes to Chinese companies right now. And we'll also be looking at trouble brewing in the retail sector, the pandemic darling May.com, looking like it's heading towards administration. And also Morrison's uh, planning to ditch over 100 of the McColl stores that it only bought uh, earlier this year in the spring. So it looks like it's shaping up to be a challenging Christmas for the sector. Now, it feels like I'm saying this absolutely every week at the moment, Laith, but... Wow, <laughs> the busy week. No <laughs> sign of things slowing down. Um We did think that this episode would actually be all about the autumn statement, but uh, I have to say I'm rather relieved that that was put on hold for a couple of weeks. No Halloween budget, no headlines about gruesome figures or anything like that. Um, Medium-term fiscal plan. It's had a lot of different names along the way as well, hasn't it? It has, yes, but I I was quite looking forward to seeing what the headline writers might come up with. Yeah, true, true. I'm sure we'll get another opportunity at that. (laughs) I'm sure there'll be plenty more skeletons hiding in the closet at number 11. Um, it, It has, though, given us a bit more time to think about the economic mess that the country is in to give the Prime Minister obviously more time to to figure out what he and his Chancellor are going to do about it but in that little window it's created an opportunity for renewed calls for an additional windfall tax and all of that of course was ably assisted by the fact that BP and Shell have both announced uh, profits, huge profits again um, for BP, certainly, it seems the cash machine still working flat out, Laith. Yeah, I mean, both both companies are announcing uh, huge, huge profits in in, uh, in the last week or so. Shell making uh, $9.5 billion worth of, uh, of profits in the, th- in the third quarter. BP making $8.2 billion worth of profits in the third quarter. Just to reiterate, that is in a quarter, i.e. in three months, not in a year. Uh, so, um, And on the back of that, we've, we've also seen Shell saying that they're going to increase the dividend. We've seen BP saying that they're going to do a $2.5 billion share buyback. Shell also doing a buyback of $4 billion. So there's a very clear narrative there, isn't there, which is, you know, consumers on the one hand are paying a very heavy price, um, um, and and on the other hand, 
you know the kind of the, you know the the energy that's being produced for those consumers by by companies like BP and Shell means that they are making billions of dollars and splashing it out on shareholders. I'm glad that you uh, made it clear that that's a quarter because it's really easy just to assume it's over 12 months. But, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge amount of money to Phenomenal. be making yeah. for such a teeny time. Um, they are already subject to a windfall tax because Rishi Sunak brought it in when he was Chancellor. And this set of results did give us some numbers on how much BP at least has been paying. Yeah, that's right. So BP is saying that in terms of the windfall tax um, itself, it's going to be paying, expecting to pay £800 million this year. Um, Shell isn't expecting to pay anything, uh, which might raise a few eyebrows here and there. Um, So, I mean, with the windfall tax, it's kind of probably, you know, it's important to kind of understand a little bit about, I suppose, how it works. Not all of the profits... Um, of uh, you know, Shell and BP are within the scope of, of the windfall tax because a lot of the profits are not made um, in the UK. Even for those profits that are made in the UK, the government has allowed uh, companies to kind of offset against that um, investment that they're making in, in kind of oil and gas extraction within the, within the UK. Not a terribly green target that, but it was something... Um, that the, that the government um, allowed that the energy companies to do and probably explains actually why Shell isn't isn't looking at to, to pay much in terms of the windfall tax. And the other thing that's going on that, um, you know, we've seen a few stories rattling around um, in, in the press actually is that these oil companies are not just making money from getting oil out of the ground. They're also making money from, you know, trading it, buying and selling it. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's an estimate out there that, that BP... Um, has made um, three um, three um, billion dollars in that quarter just from buying and selling gas, rather than actually you know normal activities getting it out of the ground. You know, getting it from one place, you know, at a low price, and then selling it to someone else over here at a much higher price. Uh, so none of that looks <laughs> very good, does it? Um, and I, th- I think you know, yeah, there is a, clearly a massive sort of target for the treasury now on 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 the on the back of these companies it's hard not to see it in black and white as well when you're a consumer it's hard to listen to the arguments for for needing investment in infrastructure to create energy security of supply to make us more green to make things more affordable in the future because you just listen to some of the numbers that you're talking about and you look at some of the numbers that your own household is having to deal with and you know, there is a great big black hole in people's budgets. And there's also a great big black hole in the Treasury's budget. And there are calls, of course, for more help with energy bills after April for at least the most vulnerable, um, of course, the, the price freeze, price cap, whatever you want to call it, um, that will only stay in place now until April. And you know, these energy company profits, they must be looking like low hanging fruit on what in the past we've called a magic money tree. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, we've got that autumn statement, as we were saying in uh, in November. So, um, you know, there are, again, as ever, kind of in the, in the few weeks before such a statement, there's sort of rumours swilling around about what the Treasury is and isn't considering. It's probably considering quite a lot of things, to be fair. 
Um, but but one of the things that it, it could do um, is it's, it could extend the windfall tax to, to include um, electricity producers who've also enjoyed strong profits. There have been some rumours that the, the Chancellor is um, looking at increasing the levy from 25% to 30% and also extending its life from 2025 to 2028, um, which, I mean, I, I don't know how long you can kind of call it a windfall tax if it's going to be in place for six years. But that's apparently that's something that's on the table. Um, so, you know, all of that is, is kind of swilling around. I'm going to throw in the mix as well. I think this is a bit of a wild card, but also rumours out there that we're going to see a windfall tax on bank profits um, as well, um, which is something that we saw actually in the in the early eighties. There was a, a profit uh, a, a tax that was uh, applied to, to to bank profits, but interest rates there were then were actually around kind of fourteen or fifteen percent. So you know we, we think things are bad now. Actually, kind of interest rates were much higher uh, back then. So so yeah, I mean, I, and I guess kind of you know the flip side of this is you know kind of. I suppose, kind of standing up partly from for for the oil companies. I'm kind of happily sitting in my in my in my bedroom in Bristol, so no one's going to throw rotten tomatoes at me. I hope, but you know, I guess the it can the, be arranged, Leith. It really can. It, it probably can. Yeah. yeah. So I guess the 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 issue is that um, you know it's all very well having having a windfall tax, but if it starts to feel like actually it's not a windfall tax, and this this is just something that the government is coming back and doing and plundering over and over again, then I guess the, the argument is that it does it does kind of um, discourage companies um, from 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 investing um, in the UK. Uh, I think it's also important to recognize the kind of you know the the scale of 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 of, of what the windfall tax is going to deliver. The Treasury expects it to deliver five billion pounds in this year and just set that in some kind of context the energy price freeze that we're ex- that, that we're expecting for the next um, six months is expected to cost the government 70 billion pounds yeah, it's nothing is it right it's, it's a drop in it's a drop in the ocean and also we've got this kind of black hole that you mentioned we don't know exactly what that's going to be but again the numbers swirling around are somewhere around the sort of 40 50 billion pound mark so you know again it's you can put these taxes in but they're not really they are moving the dial but not massively in terms of the huge interventions uh, we've we've had to see and, and i think just again just to give a little bit of perspective on this um it's quite interesting something that um antonio guterres the, the secretary general of the united nations has has, has said recently ahead of uh, the cop 27 and he's he's also come out saying that there should, should be a windfall tax on these companies but his view is that money should then be devo- uh, d- distributed to um, countries, to vulnerable countries that are suffering from the effects of climate change, and so that's an interesting sort of perspective, and shows that you know, a you know there are there are various sort of legitimate calls on this money, and b this might not be kind of a one-off that's down to kind of the situation that we've got in Ukraine. There might be a longer-term issue for oil and gas generators as well. It's really interesting that climate issues haven't been on the front page in in the same way that they were and how a lot of the arguments about needing to be cleaner and greener and more efficient have been lost as people have just been caught up in this enormous issue of just being able to pay their bills. Uh, I've spoken to so many people and I'm not just talking about the most vulnerable in society, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, middle income, middle class households who are just seeing 
the price of absolutely everything going up after school clubs, your energy bills, your shopping, uh, and it's hard. Now, there is help. Um, Normally, we would keep talking about markets, and we will go back to that. But while we're talking energy, um, let's stick with it and just talk about the £400 energy support payment, which is helping people cover their energy bills. This goes to everyone that has um, an electricity supply to their home. Um, Have you got yours? I I hope so. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I thought that I pay by direct debit. So I thought it it was all being arranged through the energy companies and that I was just going to get a reduction in my my bills. Have you not checked? I don't have to claim and I don't don't have to claim anything. You've not checked? Uh, No. I have. I have because I I just wanted to make sure that it was happening, that I'd not missed something. Mm. And um, because all energy suppliers are are different and because I I am worried about how much my bill is going to be. So I did have a look and my energy supplier has credited my account. I know some suppliers do it that way. Some suppliers wait until you pay your bill and then send it to your bank account. So there are a whole host of ways that people can get this. And I think that's causing quite a bit of confusion for people. But this um, help is available to absolutely everyone that has a domestic electricity connection in England, Scotland and Wales. If you live in Northern Ireland, you will still get the money at some point, but the full details aren't available at the moment. Um, Don't just think you're going to get 400 quid, you're going to get it in six payments between 66 and 67 pounds between October and April. Uh, And as you say, Leith, yeah, you know, if you pay monthly, you you should get that through your energy supplier. You shouldn't have to chase that, although it is worth just making sure that it is happening. Um, People who rent should get that um, back if if their electricity and gas is included in their bills. It should be passed on to you by your landlord. If you're on a prepayment meter and it's a smart device, again, you should have that paid, credited to your prepayment meter at the start of the month. But if you're on one of the old style meters where you have to top up, then you actually have to wait to get a voucher. Now, that will either come by text or email or through the post. And we learned this week that there have been some pretty big issues in terms of the number of people who need the help, who are actually claiming the help. And the post office, which is the country's biggest voucher processor, said that only 60% of the vouchers had been claimed. And that's a real worry because these vouchers only last 90 days. And after that, they're worthless. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, I mean, maybe in kind of mitigation for that, it's been quite a mild October, hasn't it? It sort of feels like that. So, I mean, I guess it's 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 possible that, you know, some people might have might have thought that they'd be better off kind of stockpiling their vouchers and, and using them later. Uh, but I think there's also been, been a lot of confusion about the payments too. Would that be fair? I think that's absolutely fair, yeah. Uh, it has been crazy mild. Um, I've been watching my thermostat like a hawk and I've actually turned mine right down and I've been telling the kids put a hat on. (laughs) I live in Yorkshire, you're not having the heating on yet. I mean, normally we don't have it on until um, the beginning of October anyway, but but October's been mild. 
Um, so yeah, I think you're right. I think some people maybe have been thinking like cash, I'll keep hold of it and then I'll use it when I need it and I'm not needed it yet, not realising that they had 90 days in order to put it on their metres. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, there is a lot of confusion and some of these uh, vouchers are coming to people with buy letters from their energy provider and for a lot of these people, you know, when a letter comes through from their energy provider at the moment, they're just thinking, I don't want to open that. It's going to be bad news. So I'm just going to put it in a drawer and then potentially missing out. We've also, of course, got confusion because the second cost of living payment is due for people on benefits in the next few weeks. And that goes directly into people's bank accounts. Uh, and pensioners also will be getting their extra winter fuel payments, that extra top up along with the regular winter fuel payments as well. And then, of course, you've got scammers. Have you had any of the texts yet from um, people saying claim your £400? Not on energy. No, I've had plenty of other stuff coming through, but not on energy yet. I've had loads of I look of those. forward to those, yeah. I, yeah. I, I probably had at least one a week um, over the last couple of months. And people that are really worried about getting this money, you know, do not put in your bank details. I mean, I think that's generally par for the course. If you're asked to put your bank details into anything and you don't feel comfortable if you've not gone directly to your energy supplier or you've not gone directly to your bank, then just don't do it. Um, if you've not had the payment, then as I say, do check with your energy provider. Um, check how they've processed it, if they haven't, why they haven't, if you're due a voucher, make sure that your provider has an up-to-date phone number or email address or postal address. Um, I think we're also aware that some of these calls cost money and some people might be worried about paying for that as well. So you can also get help from organisations like Citizens Advice. Yeah, very good advice. Thank you for that, Danny. And, um, you know, kind of uh, unfortunately carrying on the theme of people's budgets being tight. We've we've spoken, you know, many times on this podcast about rising mortgage costs. And we're recording this on on Wednesday lunchtime and we're kind of sitting, sitting, waiting for um, an interest rate decision from from uh, the Fed in the US um, later on today, isn't it, Danny? And then we've got the Bank of England. Uh, tomorrow at midday. So, so what what are we expecting? I think broadly, um, just looking at um, markets and the probability of of what's going to happen, um, I, I don't think anyone's betting against that both the Fed and the Bank of England will raise rates by three quarters of a percent. Um, obviously, if you are on a tracker mortgage or you're on the standard variable, then that is going to impact your payments. It might also sort of filter down to um, credit card payments and hopefully on the flip side, um, also filter through to savings um, interest rates. It's it's not what happens in the next couple of days, though, that's really sort of moving markets. It's how far will banks go? It's what happens next. Um, in terms of the Bank of England, uh, before uh, we had the new Prime Minister, before Rishi Sunak took over, before um, we had Jeremy Hunt um, changing all the um, things which had been implemented during the mini budget, UK markets were expecting interest rates to peak at about 6% next spring. Now the expectation is just under 5%. 
in the United States, markets had been rallying significantly. Um, you know, we had a really hawkish tone from the Federal Reserve in the United States. They, they'd really come out and basically said, we need to deal with inflation. We know the medicine is going to taste really nasty. It's going to create job cuts. It's going to slow the economy down, but we've got to do it. So we're just going to crack on. And we think that the economy can cope with it. They'd, they'd sort of backed off a little bit. They'd, they'd become a little softer in tone. And I think certainly it looked in October that investors were feeling a lot more confident. In fact, the Dow Jones registered the best monthly gains in 47 years in October. But, of course, all good things must come to an end. And we had good news yesterday, which actually for markets at the moment, a lot of good news is bad news because jobs figures in the United States were looking pretty rosy and investors basically went, oh, crikey. Right. If jobs figures are looking pretty rosy, if the economy is looking like it is still firing on all cylinders, then we can't see the Federal Reserve sort of dialing back on their plans to to keep going with interest rate hikes until inflation comes down in any meaningful way. So that's something which I think investors are really looking at at the moment, you know, particularly when it comes to the tech sector. Yeah, and and I think it's just quite interesting on that front. Just looking at um, you know, the the U.S. market in particular seems absolutely obsessed with what the Fed is doing. Um, if you look at what happened in October, there were some really disappointing results from three of the biggest companies in uh, in the U.S. from Alphabet, Amazon, and and from uh, from from Meta. And uh, the market just, you know, the, the share prices of those fell, but overall the market did really well. And it just seems it doesn't, it's all about the macro for the, um, the US market at the moment. What's going on in the macroeconomic environment, what the Fed is doing with interest rates. And it doesn't seem to be looking that much at the micro, what's going on in in sort of business earnings. And you, you kind of wonder if, if maybe, you know, there's obviously been a very big sh- fall in the S&P 500. Uh, so far this year. And you do kind of look at that and think, well, maybe that's just the kind of macro. And that when they start looking at the the, the micro as yeah. well, they'll actually realise that businesses have been warning that things are slowing down. Yeah. Um, so, you know, potentially not not um, not a great picture, even if they start to be satisfied on, on the macro side of things. And businesses but- have really been warning that things were slowing down for, for a year. I mean, you know, we yeah. had so many outlooks hinting that inflation was going to take a bite out of margins. Over a year ago, this was starting to filter through. And yet there's been, it felt like quite buoyant sentiment, really. Yeah. And yeah, and you kind of wonder if people had just have very short memories, because actually, I say short, but you know, the kind of very low interest rate environment that's been great for equities has been around for kind of, you know, 10, 10 to 12 years. There are probably, you know, analysts out there whose entire career, they haven't seen anything apart from ultra low interest rates and, and definitely investors. And we know that there's a lot of retail investors out in, out in the US as well. Um, so, you know, that all might be feeding into it that, you know, they're just not, you know, they're, they're kind of not used to this kind of environment where you have got kind of rates, um, you know, rising so steeply and, and are perhaps, you know, taking some time to adapt to it. But I mean, just looking across 
at a different part of the world as well. Another thing that's been causing causing waves, Danny, that you've been looking at is is kind of speculation that that China might relax its its zero COVID policy. Yeah, and this is off the back of um, a number of new lockdowns, um, which have impacted some big companies. Um, Foxconn uh, has had to shut down, um, or at least stop a lot of production, uh, which will impact Apple's new iPhone production. We've also had um, Shanghai's uh, Disney Resort there um, being caught up in, in lockdowns. Neo is another company which is being impacted. And all of this zero COVID policy is obviously, I mean, no one would be surprised by this, but it is having an impact on factory and service output. So we saw a slowdown in October and a lot of analysts are now looking at this and thinking, you know, we don't expect to see significant growth in the area for for a few months. Um, And, you know, this is China, which has prided itself on its economic growth and, you know, sets huge targets. With so much going on, I caught up with Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International, who's based in Hong Kong and has real insight into China and what investors should be thinking about now. You are immersed in all things China and there's an awful lot going on in China at the moment which is is really sort of focusing investor minds. I think we have to start with the zero Covid policy and we've seen companies like Apple, like Disney, like Neo being affected by what is going on with new lockdowns at the moment. Yes and you know you could probably say that it's One of the biggest risks when it comes to China, probably the biggest risk in terms of the zero COVID policy has really taken its toll in terms of not just industrial production and economic growth, but also sentiment. So it has really hampered, especially consumer sentiment. Now, what's been interesting is, especially this week and and last week following the, the closing of the Congress, so that's the Big People's Congress, which, you know, last week we really saw a lot of price action in the markets, especially when we look at how the markets fell away. But sentiment continues to have this sort of active view on whether we would see a change in COVID policy. So, you know, even today there were unverified social media posts sort of talking about potentially announcements that could be made on Friday about shortening quarantine periods, a change to flight circuit breakers. We have seen across China instead of citywide lockdowns like we saw in in Shanghai during the first half of the year, community-based lockdowns. Uh, The PCR testing infrastructure is quite unbelievable, Danny. I mean, I'm based in Hong Kong and it's it's, it's so easy. And in China, it's very much the same. But that sort of sentiment, I suppose it's so different to what we're seeing in other areas around the world, Asia included in terms of China, to a degree, Hong Kong is is the only place where you continue to have such strict COVID policies. So I don't think you're going to see a, a 180 degree turn anytime soon regarding the policy, but continued tweaks and then going into 2023, probably further loosening in terms of the policy itself. But absolutely, when you look at at the moment, 
what has been confirmed is that the Foxconn main plant, so they're a big component maker of Apple, they have gone into a lockdown, a seven-day lockdown in the area or province where they're at or the city they're at, which will then have an impact, obviously, in terms of shipments in and out of you know, the world's largest iPhone factory. And all that just generally impacts on on China's growth. I mean, we saw factory and service output down in October. There's a lot of people predicting that things are going to get worse before they get better for China, which for investors, you know, it, it does sound some alarm bells. Yeah, and definitely, you know, the risk premium uh, when we look at China has has gone up. Uh, when we look at the price of many companies, it's it's basically or investors are pricing in kind of a doomsday scenario, which we don't think is the case. So the sell-off we saw, you know, again last week, we think was a little bit overdone. So on the Monday, for example, this is again last week, it was pretty much a buyer strike, and around eighty percent of flows were coming from foreign investors. But when we look at the economy, and as you rightly pointed out, I mean, when you do have these lockdowns, we're seeing tweaks in terms of industrial production or manufacturing can continue. So the workers aren't confined to their homes, with the exception of what I just mentioned with with Foxconn. But in terms of where we're at in the economy, we are probably at the tail end of the downturn or a recession, if you wanted to put it in technical terms. And are probably going to come out of this, you know, again, going into the end of the year and into 2023. It isn't going to be a sharp recovery. So a lot of people talk about recoveries in terms of letters of the alphabet. So a V-shaped recovery, i.e. a big downward move and then a big upward move. It's probably going to look like you had to use the letters more of a W-shaped recovery. But what I think is really, really important is that technically speaking, China is in a much better position versus other major economies in terms of the policy cycle and even the earnings cycle. So if you look at monetary as well as fiscal policy movements, as the rest of the world, ex-Japan, really moves towards tightening interest rates, removing the fiscal support that we did see during the pandemic, China has a tool set to go the other way. Now, obviously, from a monetary policy perspective, it's difficult to keep on cutting your interest rates in China if, for example, the US Federal Reserve is aggressively tightening because the interest rate differential will get wider and wider, having currency impacts as well as potential capital flow impacts. But the point is that China can tweak and support its economy to various degrees. And also cutting monetary policy isn't solving China's underlying problems. So it's not about the cost of borrowing money especially when we look at the property sector, for example, it's it's more sentiment related. And I guess, you know, again, when we look at Chinese households, the savings rates over 30 percent. So it's just that the households haven't been confident in spending. It's not about, for example, that money not being in your bank account. And I think that's a huge differential for China. And China's probably at least one cycle ahead of the rest of the world in terms of where we're at policy wise, as well as I mentioned earlier, earnings wise. That's interesting what you say about um, people having money in their bank account, because clearly retailers in China and retailers that depend upon 
Chinese consumers to buy their products have have been having a tricky time. We've got Singles Day coming up, which is kind of the Chinese equivalent of of Black Friday. Um, Mm. And normally it's just one day, but Alibaba this year have extended it out to a good couple of weeks, which just sort of shows that that the confidence isn't there and they're trying to do anything to get people to spend their cash. Yeah, exactly. I mean, admittedly, Danny, at lunchtime, I was on a certain website using my singles 22 code to get a discount. <laughs> but um, don't forget also some of Alibaba's competitors also introduced these discount periods. So I guess it's not too much of a surprise that they've extended it uh, this year. And also the internet platform players have also been hurt by regulatory changes last year. So of note, and this also got investors a bit concerned, or I shouldn't say a bit, had them worried in terms of you saw anti-competitive policies being put in place. But in fairness, a lot of these policies are no different to what you have in the UK. It was just uh, interpreted in a, a very negative way when it comes to the investor base looking at China. And this is what, you know, the argument is that potentially people are too bearish on China and they're not looking at some of the positive drivers that we are seeing. Even post the Congress, everyone was so disappointed uh, because of the makeup of the leadership team. But actually you had uh, Xi Jinping and other leaders really talking about some of the growth policies, whether it's relating to innovation, whether it's relating to renewable energy, whether it's relating to actually China opening up. And so I think that's that's really important. And even, you know, the bearish sentiment towards, you know, he's perceived to be the second uh, most powerful person alongside Xi Jinping. You know, he is the, the leader of Shanghai. And, and whilst, you know, there was some criticism about the Shanghai lockdown, we can't forget that he's been very market friendly. So he was one that basically uh, saw Tesla's factory being created in Shanghai. Uh, he was very much responsible for the launch of a new stock exchange called the Star Bourse, which is a bit like NASDAQ. So he is pro-market and pro-growth and, and pro-business, which I think, again, was somewhat ignored. You talk about uh, anti-competitive measures and, and one of the key ones just externally, which has come in recently, which I know a lot of investors, particularly those that sort of focus on the tech sector, are worried about is this export ban from the United States on on sort of high-spec semiconductors. Is that something which you're concerned about? This sort of relationship or the geopolitical risk, it's, it's nothing new, especially between the two largest economies in the world. And you're going to have periods or barracks of, of periods where you do see market volatility as a result of, of policies or regulatory changes. You know, for example, there was um, concerns around Chinese companies that are listed in New York and they're called um, ADRs. And then, you know, would they have to completely delist from the US and what would happen? A lot of these companies anyway have uh, Hong Kong or China as either a secondary market to list in, or when we do see these companies come and do their initial public offerings, so coming to market, so moving from a, a private asset company or unlisted company to a listed company, a lot of them are, in fact, um, listing in this part of the world. So when we look at the tech sector in particular, I mean, the whole supply-demand situation has shifted, especially with semiconductors. You only have to look at markets like Taiwan and Korea, where we have some of the biggest semiconductor manufacturers and seeing their earnings, how they were picked up during COVID, but now there's some concern or 
or questions about because we're seeing the supply demand chain or, or dynamic shift, what that means. And, you know, Chinese manufacturers in this particular space of tech, so semiconductors and chips, have been very, very quick, or the pace has been very fast from absolutely nothing to where they are today. But having said that, the level of sophistication versus, let's say, Samsung or SK Hynix, Hynix or the Korean players or Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, it's still very, very different. But China's sort of policy around dual circulation, which is about having a strong economy and ensuring that China isn't hurt by any sort of offshore or geopolitical issues, it is often referred to in in policy speeches by the leadership team in terms of ensuring that China is capable to undertake manufacturing without getting hurt should we see these kind of restrictions. But again, it, it's part of the risk that we are seeing associated with China at the moment. So you were talking about the fact that a lot of foreign investors are maybe overly bearish when it comes to China at, at the moment. But you were also mentioning that the Chinese retail investor who was so Mm. incredibly strong is maybe in the same way that the Chinese consumer is keeping the cash in their bank account. They're they're not spending at the moment. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I mentioned the Chinese companies that were previously listed in the US or are listed in the US looking to come back. Uh, to Hong Kong or China, one, it has something to do with being eligible to list on, let's say, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange under the exchange's rules and guidelines. Uh, But what's also interesting and worth noting is that the liquidity. So in the old days, you didn't have the demand from this part of the world for such stocks. And that's why the companies had to go to places like New York for the liquidity reasons. But now, because you're seeing incomes getting larger, especially in China, and the government's supporting higher incomes, it's seeing more wealth coming into the household. And I think this is, again, an untapped, and it's a bit contrarian uh, sort of viewpoint about China, but the growth of the domestic investor is going to become equally as important as the growth and continued growth of the Chinese consumer. And so by that, when you see this capital coming into the home or more wealth, Where's it going to go? Because the asset allocation choice for households is very different in China at the moment versus, let's say, a UK household. So with property restrictions being put in place and the continued messaging about properties where you live, it shouldn't be used for speculative or investment purposes. Property is sort of not that much of an asset allocation choice anymore. You can put your money in a bank account and your deposit rate's okay, but we are living in a, a low yield world at the moment. And so this is why the development of the capital markets, both the stock market and the bond market, is really, really crucial. And what we have seen over the years is that the companies themselves are looking at at sort of ensuring shareholders get a total return outcome. So it's not just about a stock going up or capital appreciation, but it's also got something to do with the income. And so Australia in this part of the world or globally is known as one of the highest dividend yield paying markets and Chinese yields now are looking really attractive some of them across a number of industries on par with Australian yields and that's to really ensure that the domestic investors so the mainland Chinese investors don't just look at equities like they did in 2015 or earlier on where it's kind of punting going in and out short term not knowing the fundamentals of the companies they own 
but about that long-term horizon. So again, akin to, let's say, a UK household, a US household, an Australian household. And I think that's a really important message because we are seeing the quality of management teams in, in the companies improve because they're rewarding minority shareholders through this income stream. And obviously this income stream or the dividend yield and the policies acts as a cushion during these periods of volatility. So much to consider for a UK retail investor looking at China at the moment. Just very briefly, if you could say one thing to a UK retail investor who's maybe a bit nervous about looking towards China for investment, what would it be? You know, ideology aside and people's views on on policies, you know, again, that monetary fiscal position that the People's Bank of China or the central bank is in is, is very strong, especially relative to other major economies. I don't think we can underestimate just that growth of the domestic economy. It's It's definitely, as I said, having some bumps and hurdles at the moment. But that potential delta growth or the growth that we're going to see once the economy recovers is very, very attractive. And, you know, these big themes that we often hear about China, the consumer, the investor, the rise of innovation, um, that they all are still very much intact. And if you do think that China is going to either be the second largest economy or indeed the largest economy, then valuations wise or where prices are at at the moment, it's it's basically you know, very, very attractive, even though sentiment is admittedly very dire at this this juncture. Catherine, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Danny. Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International there. You can find Fidelity on Twitter. It's got a new head twit, or as his Twitter handle said at lunchtime today, Twitter complaint hotline operator. I love that. <laughs> I love that. It's jaunty. It's a jaunty, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the bird is freed, is what he said on the day that uh, he announced that, that the deal was finally closed. I mean, that that was the way that we heard about it, which was such an, an anticlimax to what has been an absolutely bonkers ride. Yeah, so it's been going on uh, for most, most of this year. Um, you know, kind of a, a, a real kind of public spat between um, Elon Musk and, and the Twitter board, uh, specifically kind of revolving around the deal, uh, whether he was still obliged to, to, to take over Twitter um, and, and also kind of, you know, the number of uh, fake spam accounts that there were on Twitter. So pretty unedifying spectacle, I think, for everybody involved. But it's now it's now done. He's bought Twitter for 44 billion dollars uh, 54 dollars uh, and 20 cents per share so that's significantly higher than than at the ipo price back in 2013 when twitter came to the market so the ipo was 26 bucks um so on the first day the first trade in twitter was 45 dollars so actually it was only the kind of you know the 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 um, kind of big banks who got in on the ipo who actually made made big profits on that first day actually you know, for most of the time that the, the Twitter's been trading on the market, it's been significantly below that fifty-four dollar, fifty-four dollar mark that uh, that that Elon Musk has now now paid for it. So, you know, I think it's questionable whether he still thinks it's a good deal, um, seeing as he spent the last six months trying to uh, to wriggle out of it, and that battle has just hit hit the law courts, and then suddenly we've got the the deal is done. So the bird is freed, apparently. It, it did feel like there was a bit of buyer's remorse in there. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely a quite public buyer's remorse as well. <laughs> I mean, he's he's such a master of social media, and I loved the image of him taking the sink into um, Twitter's office. And the idea, I think, was let it sink in. But I've heard an, a number of commentators, and certainly it was the first thing I thought. The kitchen sink, he'd thrown the kitchen sink at it, you know. That's what I thought as well, actually, yeah, yeah. So so strange. But you know, I know regulators must be really concerned. And I, I know certainly some Twitter users have already come off Twitter because there is a big concern about not only having just one person in control of, of I know it's a small platform, but it's an important platform when you're talking about news and speech and, and the way that governments interact with people and put their messages out there. So this... This is going to make some people a little nervous. Yeah, a little, a little twitchy for sure. Yeah, um, uh, I think you know he's, you know, he's obviously got some plans um, that he's starting to execute uh, f- for Twitter. Um, he has a kind of, um, you know, goal of kind of increasing uh, or, or pushing pushing the boundaries, I suppose, of, of free speech, um, which, yeah, I guess is 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 probably concerning for some some regulators um and, and i think you know the the you know tw- twitter is now private so i mean for for investors in twitter investors of twitter no longer hold twitter shares i i you know if i was a tesla investor um uh, which i'm not um very glad of this year, that, that this year not so glad last year but um <laughs> the I'd be a bit, I, I, you know, I, I might be a bit concerned that he's now spread very thinly because he's obviously CEO of, of, of Tesla. He's also got SpaceX as well. And now he's chief twit. And, um, you know, that's obviously going to take up a, a, a lot of a lot of his focus. And he does have to seem to have this sort of slightly, you know, cultish uh, following, particularly amongst, I guess, kind of retail traders in the in the US, particularly those, you know, the, the Wall Street bets, a community who were really kind of um, you know who were, who kind of gave us that that meme stock uh, in investing craze, but you know I think you know you can ch- you can channel Terry Jones from Monty Python here and say that he's not the Messiah; he's actually quite a naughty boy <laughs> because if you look if you look back at what he's done with Tesla, um, you know there was a tweet back in twenty eighteen. Yeah, I'm going to take Tesla private four hundred and twenty dollars. I've got the funding. The share price. Absolutely popped uh, on the back of that, and it turned out to be false, um, and it didn't happen. And actually, the the, the SEC um, charged him with with civil securities fraud, and then you know reached a settlement with him. But still, obviously, he's allowed to to continue running running the company. And then, even recently, uh, um, you know, he's he 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 put a Twitter poll um, asking a Twitter poll out asking, "Shall I sell ten percent of my stake in Tesla?" I'll abide by the results of this poll. And that sent the share price down 10%. Yeah. So again, as a shareholder, I'd be looking at that and thinking, you're not really taking care of me too well, are you, if you're kind of really that flippant about everything? But, you know, of course, you know, that's, I guess that's part of the, you know, the, the whole circus, isn't it? It's kind of, you know, he's got this vast wealth, he's got this fame, and, you know, and I guess, you know, his misbehaviour makes for a phenomenal story as well. Apparently, he's got a lot of kids to pay for. So he needs to... Is that right? Twitter, okay. You okay. know, really work. Um, <laughs> and 
monetizing it more effectively and you were talking earlier about some huge disappointments um, from US companies and it, that is all down to a slowing of advertising spend because we've got these recession worries so I think there are a lot of questions about how he's going to be able to to monetize it more effectively and I know one of the things he's talking about doing is is making people pay for their now everyone calls them a blue tick but I a lot of people were talking this morning about the fact that it's actually a white tick on a blue background. But okay. whatever it is, w- would you pay for one? No, but I don't really use Twitter. I'm on Twitter, but I don't really use it. So, yeah, it, w- it would appeal to me. I guess I can see how it would appeal to, you know, you know, people who are, you know, kind of celebrities or politicians for whom that verification is quite important. I suppose for them it would it would make a difference, I guess. Well, um, but I, th- I think I think you're right about the kind of the whole monetization issue because it's not an auspicious time to be buying into a company that makes a lot of its money from global advertising re- revenues when you know we're, we're you know facing what looks like a kind of global economic slowdown. Um, I think it's it's quite interesting that you know we we've talked a little bit about how he's kind of looking to push the boundaries of free speech, but one of the first things he did um, after taking over Twitter was actually on 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 Twitter he tweeted a message to advertisers kind of saying, look, don't worry. We know that there are laws that we need to comply with. We're not going to turn Twitter into this kind of what he called a free-for-all hellscape. So there is, I think, within that, some sort of you know um, recognition that there is a balancing act to be met here between free speech uh, and also keeping Twitter as a, as a kind of viable um, business platform in terms of keeping advertisers on site and of course keeping governments and regulators on side as well. Now I like Twitter, I use Twitter but I have been on the wrong end of some nasty comments on Twitter because it, it, it is a place where free speech can become hate speech quite easily and we've seen all sorts of people banned from using it um, and I know there is a great deal of concern about what might come um, but it is the end of the roller coaster for Twitter investors, as you say, possibly not the end of the roller coaster for Tesla investors. Um, but it is also turbulent times for shareholders of online homeware retailer made.com. Uh, trading was suspended Tuesday. The firm said it was planning to appoint an administrator. Now, th- this firm's been trying to find a-, a buyer since September. It put itself on the market, it's had a string of profit warnings. And have been trying to secure about £70 million of emergency funding just to secure its future. And, and I was having a look and shares had fallen by 99% since the start of the year before trading was suspended. I mean, that's not good. <laughs> that's not... Yeah, that's not going to look good on your annual statement, is it? No, not so much. <laughs> How's my ISA doing? Not so good. Yeah, yeah well, it, it's one of those, we've talked a lot about pandemic winners, um, companies that, that did incredibly well because we were stuck in our homes, we had to do online shopping, it's the only place that we could access um, the stuff that we wanted to buy. Um, but it's it's really fallen foul of a, a whole load of issues from supply chains, rising prices, and then, you know, you've got dwindling consumer spend. Um, because when people are thinking about their budgets, and they're cutting back, they're cutting back on those nice to haves first and, and the big ticket items. Uh, certainly, you know, the, the first thing to, to get the chop, it's one of those things where we can leave it to, to another day. And, 
it's been caught with a huge load of inventory, which is uh, something that stock issues also caught out ASOS and Walmart. Um, it says it stopped taking new orders. It aims to fulfill existing orders, not offering refunds at this time. But, you know, for a lot of people waiting for sofas, things like that to arrive, um, you know, if, if they've trying to deck out their new flat or whatever, and it's it's a lot of money to be worried about getting, um, particularly, of course, in the round of Christmas. Yeah, and I mean, we've actually had some some news out from uh, from Next tra- trading statement from Next. Quite interesting. Next, where they haven't altered their guidance for profit for the year, which suge- suggests that they're not expecting too bad a Christmas. But their Next are kind of kind of infamous for being for kind of you know kind of playing down their kind of profit guidance. So it may just be that they're kind of playing into their, you know, kind of their their pessimistic kind of view is already kind of playing out. But it does look there are kind of other there's other stuff, other other figures flying around that that suggests that it's 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 going to be a tricky Christmas for retailers on the whole. Yeah, absolutely. Catherine was um talking earlier about Singles Day and um that's kind of China's Black Friday. And there have been a whole load of surveys out in the last few weeks um, suggesting we're going to send a whole lot less on Black Friday events. Uh, We also had an update um, this morning on Wednesday from the British Retail Consortium. And it's really focused on food inflation because, of course, food, fuel, housing, those are the things that we can't do without. And I don't know about you, but when I do my shop at the moment, you you get to the till and you sort of go, how much? Thirteen yeah. <laughs> percent was the um, number that uh, food prices have risen um, up from last month. Um, BRC is saying, look, you know, retailers they're doing absolutely everything that they can to reduce costs, but people just can't spend what they don't have. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and also kind of I think we've had news from McCall's as well, haven't we? Morrison's and McCall's McCall's just, just months after the kind of the rescue, it looks like um that's moving in the opposite direction again. Yeah, so Morrison's um bought up uh, over a thousand McCall shores out of administration. Um now it's announced that it's gonna shut hundred and thirty-two loss making stores. Um it it's particularly interesting, I think, because 55 of those stores actually have post office counters in them. And for a lot of communities, those post office counselors are massively important, you know, to do your banking, to post letters, um, to, to get benefits and things like that. So um, but there are huge issues there, I think. Um, also, of course, um, there are uh, around 1,300 potential job losses, though Morrison's does say that it will try and move anybody across to different posts. But I think that there are big questions generally being asked about the health of Morrison's since it was um, taken into private equity hands. Uh, and one of the things that caught my eye, and we've it's been creeping towards this and it's now happened, it's lost its place as one of the big four supermarkets. Aldi has overtaken it because people are looking for for value. They're, they're trying to make every pound go as far as it possibly can. And I know there's going to be a huge fight this Christmas um, with supermarkets trying to get as much of that Christmas food cash as possibly can. Uh, and I know I noticed um, Sainsbury's today announcing that they're recruiting huge numbers of, of people for Christmas trading. So, 
clearly that they're hoping that they will get people through the doors because you have to buy food. Um, you know, you're probably going to cut back, but you're still going to be spending quite a chunk of your cash on food. But shoppers really looking for value at the moment. Yeah, obviously a very big t- uh, time of year for, for retailers coming up. So that's it for this week. Uh, thank you, Danny. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, Danny, I think it's you and Laura Souter next week. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, I know Laura will take us uh, through everything you need to know about this week's interest rate rise. Um, it, it's a subject also that we've tackled for our next episode of the Money Matters podcast, which is aimed at making it easier for women to invest and get to grips with their finances. But it's a great resource for everybody if you've not caused it. Uh, until next week, um, don't forget to email us podcast at ajbell.co.uk with any thoughts, topics, or guests that you would like to hear on this pod. Leigh, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolute pleasure, Danny, as always. And uh, thank you all for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.